ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you for The Country Hour today. Thanks very much for your company. Coming up, Elders has released its full-year financial results, so we'll find out what's come from those. Also, consumer confidence is shaky in China and financial markets are dropping, but so is the temperature. So hopefully that means demand for cosy Aussie wool jumpers. Not something we can verify yet, um, but one report from a source in China was that retail is showing some, some really tentative signs of better sentiment. We'll have more on that shortly. But first today, there's a lot of data being collected along the supply chain from farmer to consumer. The challenge is to bring it all together in a useful and user-friendly way. A trial being run in the South Australian dairy industry is working to make that a reality, allowing milk products to be traced along the entire process, offering greater transparency and certainty, especially for consumers. It's being pulled together by DataHash, backed by the industry and supported by a recent AgTech Growth Fund grant. DataHash Director David Travers explained how it will work. It's really looking at the digital supply chain for reinforce you know our physical supply chains that we've become familiar with over many years and in this case we're piloting it uh, in the dairy industry to be able to sort of track the movement of, of milk from cow to processor to consumer so what we're really looking to do is to digitize the physical process uh, through automation so that ultimately we can track that liter of milk from the time that it's the value uh, and why put together a system like this? Who, who is it benefiting? This is part of a number of trials that we've, we've got going on with, uh, with retailers. Uh, and in this case, what we're really looking to do in working with our partners at Flurio Milk is to be able to associate that physical milk with the, the digital supply chain so that you know, the physical benefits obviously are, are obvious to consumers in consuming milk. But the digital benefits that sit to the side you know, include things that will occur in the future, such as you know, the automation of the account that the farmer gets paid by, so speeding up the way in which supply of money to the farmer occurs. You know, we're automating some of the regulatory requirements, so DairySafe is one of the partners on the, the other trial that we're doing, so that instead of having a manual auditing system, the DairySafe auditors will also be able to see the flow of that milk by looking at their screens. Um, So we see, you know, in the future when these supply chains and these digitisation steps occur in in larger scale that, um, you know, makes the whole industry much more transparent, but it should lead to faster movements of money and and product and ultimately bringing more confidence to the consumer and and, uh, more confidence to the farmer that they understand where where their product is actually going in the end. 
this is something that I guess has always been important to the industry, but certainly seems to be um, something that gets a lot more publicity these days, I guess, is growing in importance, that transparency, integrity, particularly for consumers, that what they're buying can be traced back so that they know they're getting a, a genuine product. Yeah, exactly. And particularly in, you know, products where there might be organic certifications, you know, where there might be, you know, premiums available, you know, such as this milk is from a jersey a herd of cattle or, you know, in, in other areas where, we, where we've piloted with the wine industry that, you know, you're buying Coonawarra Cabernet or you're buying Barossa Shiraz or whatever it is. As you say, you're trialling it with dairy and it sounds like there's quite a bit of industry involvement here, but it may work for other commodities as well? Yes, we've previously done trials with Wine Australia. Um, this one is involving the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association. So SADA is one of, one of our project partners. And so, you know, we're, we're continuing an advanced R&D phase, I suppose, um, as we sort of better understand how we move this information and, and what DataHash does is we're a data warehouse effectively. So, you know, we support the provision of, of that data to, you know, other users, whether that's a supermarket or a regulator or whether it's a processor or whether, it's, you know, it's a farmer. So, you know, what we see is ultimately the goal here is to, is to provide a database that can be accessed, you know, easily and quickly by people who consuming that data. But the sort of underlying strength of it is, I suppose, is that everyone is looking at the same information. So one of the things, you know, as the son of a farmer that we often get frustrated with is we collect this information and then we provide it, you know, to multiple different um, organisations and government departments and then we continuously have to provide the same information over and over again. What data has aimed to do is to be that database. This data is already out there. It already exists. This doesn't necessarily mean more work for farmers or those along the chain, it's data that is already being generated. It is what putting it in a more central and user-friendly way. Exactly. So, in fact, we're decentralising it. So, rather than it existing at, you know, Flurio Milk or at, you know, a supermarket or at Dairy Safe, we're actually distributing the information through a ledger so that everyone can access the information. You know, using security and protocols, obviously, um, so that there's a single source of truth rather than, you know, if I'm selling my grapes to Penfolds and they ask me for this information one day and then, you know, the regulator asks me the information next month, you know, they can go to the same source of truth. And that's what really what we're trying to, to pilot here is how do we do that at scale? So we've, you know, been through this with wine, we're going through this with dairy, we're talking with players who are in the beef industry around the National Livestock Register. So ultimately, you know, we see benefits by having all of this information available you know, in a centralised form so that there's confidence about the quality of information that can move from database to database really easily, which is one of the challenges in data is having different sets of information that don't quite talk to each other. And as soon as you can you know, rely on the quality of the information, you know, we can start to introduce other kinds of efficiencies like machine learning and, and, and automation in other ways. And, and hopefully you know, when, we, when we see these systems emerge over the next four to five years, that you know, ultimately there'll be increased margins for farmers from savings in time and efficiency. Data Hash Director David Travers speaking with Selena Green. Now, earnings for agribusiness giant Elders have fallen more than a quarter on the previous year, according to results released today. Earnings before interest and tax are down 26% on the previous year to $171 million. The company has attributed the fall to lower prices for ag chemicals and a huge decline in livestock prices, as well as inflationary pressures and rising interest rates. Angus Verley spoke with Managing Director and Chief Executive Mark Allison about their results. I think uh, 
when we look at the backdrop, which is a very difficult last 12 months through uh, regional rural Australia and, uh, and agriculture, uh, with uh, commodity prices uh, coming off significantly, uh, the result is the uh, is pretty solid. It's the uh, the second highest result in ten years for elders. Uh, the return on capital sixteen percent is uh, a premium return on capital, and uh, the uh, cash conversion that we've achieved has also been uh, very very positive from a uh, shareholder viewpoint. So, I, I think making the best of difficult situations is uh, is how I describe it. Uh, what aspect of the elders' business is responsible for most of the uh, profit decline? Well, I, th- I think everyone throughout uh, regional rural Australia is aware of the uh, the decline in livestock prices, both sheep and cattle. Our feeling as we were coming into FY23 was that there would be a decline from the record highs from previous years. Uh, we thought it might have been a 20 or 25% uh, reduction, but it's uh, uh, 60% plus across uh, a number of areas. So, so that, that's had a, uh, a big imp- impact on the uh, business. And there's also been uh, the impact of uh, declining input uh, costs, which meant that we uh, had a higher priced inventory and we're obviously needing to sell that at a discount because of the declining uh, costs uh, coming in for replacement stock. And for your clients, for farmers, with that uh, big decline in livestock prices, I suppose it overall a big hit to confidence and, and reduced willingness or, or ability to spend on some of the products and services that Elders offers? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. I mean, it's, it is a significant hit. When you look at the farm management deposits around Australia, they're at a record high of $7 billion. So, uh, so it would seem, or the numbers would say, uh, that it's not a uh, crisis situation throughout uh, through uh, throughout uh, our ag communities uh, because there you know there's a fair um, uh, a bunch of uh, deposits there and resources but it is very very difficult and uh, you know particularly where investments were made by many of our clients to increase the flocks and the herds and they've had good uh, good seasons and then the uh, the value of their uh, their product uh, is has diminished significantly. Yes, so it's very very difficult. If we look to the future, uh, the very strong El Nino forecast uh, in Victoria. To this point, we've had very good conditions, but uh, very strong expectations that it will get dry as it has in other parts of the country. So, uh, is the worst still to come? No, I don't think so. Um, certainly, uh, my personal view on it is uh, quite positive and optimistic because we don't see El Nino events right across the board. They they tend to be regionalised and localised. Uh, the uh, I think the uh, the bomb uh, uh, is saying that uh, as we come into autumn, uh, any uh, potential El Nino effects uh, will be diluted. The oldest share price, though, it's. Uh sitting just over $6, that's uh, around $4 less than it was at, if we were having this conversation at the same time last year? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, I just had a quick look between uh, presentations this morning and it's up to uh, it had got to $7 today. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors because you'll recall this time last year there was also a succession issue that has been resolved. Uh, and uh, this time last year, we we're also going into uh, some uns- uh, geopolitical uncertainties and the uh, early call that there will be an El Nino effect, which hasn't been anywhere near the level that was uh, called at that time. That succession issue, that was uh, in this time last year, you announced or the company announced that you would eventually be departing the business, but then earlier this year, that, that decision was reversed and you, you made, well, a lot of money was put on the table to incentivise you to stay with the business? 
Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, it's a really exciting period this next three years. Uh, when we look at the fourth APLIN plan, so we overachieved all of our commitments for the first three APLIN plans. They're, they're all three-year plans. And I think now running through for the next three years, particularly with the systems modernisation that we're putting in place, which will allow elders to have a platform to further service and and uh, cross-service our clients uh, with uh, new innovative um, uh, management systems, etc. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, like a really exciting period. The, the issue with El Nino or climatic cycles and with livestock cycles is that they're cycles. Uh, we commit to 5 to 10% growth through the cycles. And, uh, you know, as we go through the next three years, uh, the market conditions will be more favourable. Having said that, the business model was resilient enough to allow us to uh, to deliver pretty strong results this year on the back of uh, or in the face of difficult market conditions. Elders have spent quite a lot of money on an automated wool handling facility in Melbourne. When's that going to be up and running? Uh, so uh, there's uh, one in uh, Perth and one in Melbourne. So in Perth, uh, that was launched in um, in July this year, and that's operating well. And the the Melbourne facility uh, will be opened in uh, February next year. So, uh, and it's a three hundred eighty thousand bale capacity. So uh, across the uh, across the two. So it's, again, it's pretty exciting. And also, you know, the twenty five million dollars investment into wool. Uh, it's the biggest investment in wool for many, many years and I, I guess just shows our core DNA. Next year we'll be a 185-year-old company and, uh, you know, regional rural Australia, wool and uh, livestock and agribusiness is our core. And are you content with that investment at a time when there has been a move away from wool production in a lot of areas? Yeah, well, I think, you know, wool is still an important industry in Australia. And there may have been a move away in terms of uh, alternative uh, products uh, to uh, to use, but uh, from our viewpoint, th- this is multi generational client base. You know, we, we've uh, we've started in the wool industry. Uh, the prospect of us not, in fact, we are the only ones to reinvest significantly in the wool industry, and we believe in it. A, a common criticism of, of big businesses like Elders is that they're not necessarily paying their their fair fair share of the tax burden. What what's Elders' mm-hmm. tax bill look like? Uh, well, you're probably aware of back back in the day. In fact, when I uh, when I joined the board, uh, we were in bad bank and almost uh, had made multiple losses, and uh, and therefore we we had a significant build up of tax losses, and so you need to earn your way out of those tax losses. So we haven't because of the tax loss situation, uh, we haven't been paying uh, tax as we take up all the tax losses and we're just about at the point where now we're through all those tax losses because of the uh, the strong growth of the business. Okay, so right through till now after that lean trot for elders, you, you, you haven't paid any tax through that period? Uh, no, we, we have paid because we have a number of entities where we're not uh, one, a majority owner. And so in those, we, we pay taxes. And that's why, you know, our dividend, the, the 23 cent dividend is 30% uh, franked uh, because we do use our tax credits, or sorry, the, yeah, the tax credits, franking credits uh, from the entities where, where they're uh, not wholly owned by us. Elders recently made a big acquisition in southwest Victoria, purchasing the, the Charles Stewart Group. That's a livestock and real estate agency business. What was the, the rationale there? Uh, well, yeah, the same rationale that we used for all of our Bolton acquisitions. So we had a geographical gap and we had a, uh, 
uh, we had a product and service uh, gap in that case, the real estate and uh, agency, uh, livestock agency. Uh, and so and then, then we uh, go through our acquisition process, which is to determine if uh, the culture of the business fits us, safety culture, the uh, uh, quality of the people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, we felt that there was a very strong alignment between uh, Charles Stewart and ourselves and uh, it, it fits a, uh, fills a significant gap that we had in Victoria. Just finally, as we touched on earlier, uh, in terms of succession, you had planned to leave. You, you've now planned to stay with the business. Uh, how long have you got left to run? Yeah, well, uh, I uh, my intent is to see out this eight-point plan and the uh, the joke that I use around head offices and the good news is there's wheelchair access to head office so I could be here for a long, long time. Elders Managing Director and Chief Executive Mark Allison speaking with Angus Verley. Brooke Nindorf with you today. It's 21 minutes past 12. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. We were ultimately living two lives. The magic was when Chris and Daniel and I played together. That's what made Silverchair so special. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. When I got off the plane, the reception made me fall in love with this country. People didn't see a black man. People saw a human being. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, consumer confidence is shaky in China where financial markets are dropping, but so are temperatures and wool producers are hopeful. That means demand for cosy Aussie wool jumpers. Jenny Turner is a wool marketing rep for the Riverina and Calcurn with Fox and Lily Rural, and she says the wool brokers hosted a delegation from China last week and gained some interesting insights for the market. Well, I guess what was interesting was that we started with um, uh, negative speculation, thoughts that the AUD was going to rise further post um, a post US currency being down and some rate rises, but it, it didn't happen. So we ended up with quite a reasonable um, firm market. Uh, Fox and Lily actually hosted a small delegation from China this week, and, and we got some really interesting background on what's impacting people's attitude there these days. Real estate in China is 60% down. Um, from where it was before, so a lot of negative equity. Share market in China is half of what it used to be, so their their ideas of wealth have really changed. Um, we heard some great news about some innovation in carding machinery. Traditional carding users must use wool that's free from burn. To achieve this, they chemically treat it by the carbonising process. Mm-hmm. But these new advanced carding drums can actually um, process up to 1.5% veg, which is significantly higher. So that was we, we thought that was pretty cool news um, and not something we can verify yet, um, but one report from a source in China was that retail is showing some, some really tentative signs of better sentiment. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, speaking about real estate movement and share market changes in China, how does that sort of translate over to the wool market? I think it, it, it's probably best described in terms of confidence. Um, and also in terms of, of general wealth. We are highly impacted um, by domestic China retail and that real estate and share market really affects the mums and dads in China, so directly affects their, um, their, their purchasing of woolen jumpers. Uh, we are heading into summer here, but what about temperatures in China? Well, I'm so pleased you asked that, Fiona, because we have good news for the Aussie wool market. The temperature in China dropped like a stone this week, so hopefully this helps with winter clothing purchases. (laughs) Um, And just very quickly, Jenny, anything we need to know about the week ahead? 
We have uh, 45,500 bales on offer this week, which is, uh, you know, getting towards a, a bigger sale that we'd expect for this time of year. Inquiry levels have not been overwhelming, but there seems to be enough interest from the Commission buyers to expect the market to be well supported with the greater interest on the 19 micron and broader. Jenny Turner from Fox and Lily Rural speaking with Fiona Broom. Let's find out what's happening with the weather on this Monday and looking ahead. We're joined by Simon Timkey at the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Simon. Hello, Brooke. What's happening around the state? Well, we've got a, a fairly extensive band of middle and high-level cloud over the west of the state, and we are seeing a little bit of that high cloud push over central and eastern parts. Out in the west, uh, where the cloud is thicker, we are seeing uh, a, a bit of shower and thunderstorm activity, and there's quite a depth of moisture through the atmosphere out to the west there. So there is potential for some of those showers, but in particular the thunderstorms, to produce some uh, some locally heavy falls. We had some uh, uh, reports of around 25 millimetres or so up in the far northwest there uh, during the day yesterday, and, and I think we've got potential to see some some similar sort of falls, possibly more with some thunderstorms today. The, uh, we are flagging the, the potential for some se- severe thunderstorms in the far northwest today um, with uh, possibly local heavy rain, some large hail, possibly some uh, some gusty winds as well. So uh, some, some weather expected in, in the far northwest uh, during the afternoon. Um, those those showers are, are generally expected to, to extend over the, the west today uh, and then across parts of the south during tomorrow. But the, the focus is still very much uh, in the far northwest for, for tomorrow where the, the heavier falls and the more significant thunderstorms are likely. Generally for, for Tuesday, uh, thunderstorms are possible if you can imagine a line roughly from Sejuna to Broken Hill uh, north of that line is where the, the thunderstorms are possible. We will see showers further south over the agricultural area, um, mostly during Tuesday morning, particularly the early hours of Tuesday morning. Uh, so we will see a, a little bit of shower activity in the south. Not expecting any big totals, but uh, but uh, uh, some some shower activity, particularly during Tuesday morning. A similar sort of day on the way for Wednesday too with that potential for thunderstorms, severe thunderstorms in the far northwest again uh, and in general uh, thunderstorms possible north of that line through Sejuna and Broken Hill again. Um, Further south, still the the chance of a shower but but less likely than than Tuesday I think. Uh, And then through the um, later part of the week, Thursday and Friday, we'll see that, that thunderstorm and shower activity gradually uh, contract northwestwards. So by Friday, it will really be just confined to the, to the far northwest of the state. Uh, and then over the weekend, the, the um, story from the different models we're looking at is quite different. So we go into a period of fairly low confidence in the forecast through Saturday, Sunday and Monday. Generally, we think there's a chance of seeing some showers and thunderstorms in the far west on Saturday, extending over the west on Sunday and the south on Monday. But but confidence is low. So we're hoping that uh, as we get closer to the weekend, we'll get a little bit more consistency from that guidance and be able to be a bit more confident. But uh, but at this stage, keep a, an eye out for some weather over the weekend uh, and Monday. Uh, but don't, uh, don't count uh, your chickens before they're hatched there. Um, uh, as far as rainfall totals go for that four-day period out to Wednesday, uh, out to Friday, sorry, midday Friday, um, fairly variable. 
Um, but in general, uh, I think less than five millimetres expected about central and eastern parts, um, but increasing to five to 15 millimetres about western parts and 15 to 30 millimetres in the far west. Now, thunderstorms have the potential to produce some locally heavier falls than that, and I think we'll probably see by the end of the week some places that pick up more than one or two thunderstorms are likely to see some some local falls in excess of uh, 50 millimetres in the far west so there is some potential for some significant rainfall totals over the, the the western parts of the state over the next few days Brooke. Yeah one to keep an eye on that's for sure thanks very much for your time this afternoon Simon. Thanks, Brooke. That was Simon Timkey at the Bureau of Meteorology, and a yeah, bit of a uh, bit of rain coming. Let's have a look at the western inlands for tomorrow. For the upper western, a mostly sunny morning, slight chance of a shower in the late afternoon and evening. The chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening, with little or no rainfall in the far east. Winds south to southeasterly, fifteen to twenty-five kilometres per hour, tending south to southwesterly, twenty to thirty kilometres kilometres per hour in the late afternoon then tending south southeasterly in the evening overnight temperatures falling to between 17 and 23 with daytime temperatures reaching 32 to 39 for the lower western partly cloudy a slight chance of a shower chance of a thunderstorm in the north in the afternoon and evening some light winds becoming southerly 15 to 25 kilometres per hour in the morning then becoming light in the evening overnight temperatures falling to between 12 and and 16, with daytime temperatures reaching 25 to 31. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to half past 12. Plenty more still to come on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello and thanks very much for your company on this Monday afternoon. Coming up, a South Australian woman is turning farm waste into a sustainable food business. I had a friend who was throwing away one tonne of dried peaches a year. So I said to him, I'd go to a couple of markets and I would sell peaches for him. So I evaluated, did a bit of chocolate dipping and they went. It's not just peaches that she's doing, there's all sorts. So we're going to hear about that shortly. I want to hear from you though. Do you turn some of your food waste or scraps into something else? You can send me a text on 0467 and let me know. But first, let's get the latest from the newsroom. We're joined by Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, the federal government says it's accepting or accepting in principle all of the recommendations made by the Royal Commission into robo-debt. The report by Commissioner Catherine Holmes was the culmination of hundreds of hours of evidence and made more than 50 recommendations. They include offering more face-to-face support for people going through the social security system. SA Health says outbreaks reported on a cruise liner which arrived in Adelaide this morning have been declared over. Cases of COVID-19 and gastroenteritis were reported on the Grand Princess, which left Queensland 18 days ago for a cruise of the Australian coastline. SA Health says remaining illnesses among the passengers are consistent with numbers expected on a cruise. And an expert in the modelling of infectious diseases says the number of people being hospitalised with COVID across Australia has increased in recent weeks. Doctors are urging people to stay up to date with their booster shots as the country endures another wave of the virus. Professor James Wood from the University of New South Wales says it's difficult to determine the extent given the decline in testing and states no longer reporting case numbers. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks very much, Matt. Matt Coleman in the newsroom. Now, African swine fever has devastated pig populations across five continents and is considered one of the top risks to Australian agriculture. And when it hit China, devastating its pork production, meat prices spiked. But for one of our closest neighbours, East Timor, the impact of disease on everyday Timorese was just as bad. But Australian scientists were there to help. East Timor's chief veterinarian, Dr Joanita Jong, tells reporter Emma Field what happened in November 2019 when they first received reports of African swine fever. At that time we are facing very difficult situations when we have the report coming from farmers that they have lots of pigs dying in uh, the capital city. Culturally pig is very important. Cultural ceremony uh, it requires live pigs. Pigs also uh, support our local farmers. Anytime they can sell, they can, they can get the money in these emergency situations. Mm. When we visit them, they're just crying. They say, we lost off the pigs. What do we have to do? At the time, China was suffering its second major swine fever outbreak where millions of pigs died and the disease spread to Indonesia, which shares a land border with East Timor. But without any ability to test for the disease, Dr Joanita picked up the phone and called some Australian government colleagues who advised her to send samples to a government lab near Geelong in Victoria. When those results were positive for ASF, she again asked for Australian help. At that time, we we have no preparations at all. We have no equipment, we have no budget, we have no uh, nothing. Uh, in order to stop the the virus. Agriculture Victoria pathobiology veterinarian Professor Grant Rowland got a call from Canberra asking him to take a newly developed field test called LAMP to Timor. In in Timor, setting up uh, for testing within two weeks. It was uh, pretty full on. The LAMP test, we could actually run that out of a, a, um, a ute. Uh, and that's how it's designed to use in Australia. They didn't have any testing at all for African swine fever. So by us taking our field test over, at least they could uh, actually have their laboratory uh, working on African swine fever. So that's, uh, that's how we did it. Pork production is vastly different in Timor. There are no large-scale piggeries, subsistence farming is common, and there's certainly no cold chain supply network. Soon after, East Timor's Ministry for Agriculture started a publicity campaign to educate farmers and other pig owners about the disease and measures to prevent its spread. This included a special hotline nicknamed the Pig Phone and the Australian government was closely watching developments. East Timor is just an hour and a half flight from Darwin. Sniffer dogs are being urgently flown to Darwin in a bid to stop African swine fever from entering the country. Now, this comes after several confirmations of the disease in East Timor. For the Agriculture Victoria team, that first visit in 2019 was just the beginning of a biosecurity partnership. We wound up with uh, three years funding to continue the work on African swine fever because it was still running at that stage uh, on the, and we're looking at recovery. Uh, that first tranche of funding, that was for three years, and that was looking at increasing the uh, testing, so uh, making sure the LAMP uh, test was continuing and backing that up, more training, but also getting surveillance out around the country, knowing where that disease was. 
The Victorian government support included helping the Tamarese rebuild their herd and rolling out some biosecurity pig pens. Professor Rowland said the pens were simple and cost-effective and essential because many pigs roamed free and foraged across Tamarese villages. So if you have the pigs that are being uh, kept in a biosecure pen, it's just like a pigsty, but you have a, a second fence around that. As long as you don't have, if you like, nose-to-nose contact, the disease stops. And this, along with all the other biosecurity measures, worked. The first outbreak was basically out of control. There were around about 150, 180,000 pigs that died. That affects something like 50,000 families because most families over there have a pig or, or three. Since then, with the surveillance and the testing, the very quick testing, uh, we can diagnose within 24 hours now. We've had another couple of outbreaks of African swine fever up there, and each time we've lost less than 100 pigs. That's the power of the system that these guys now have. And after the success of the ASF regime, Dr Joanita says they're developing new measures against other biosecurity threats. Because we are still free from uh, food and mouth disease and uh, lumpy skin disease, but it is risk, uh, still a high risk to Timor-Leste. That's why we did uh, the support from the Department of Agriculture uh, in Canberra. We have uh, uh, regular surveillance every year. We now stop the importations of live animals from Indonesia. And then uh, luckily that we have this uh, always support from our, our neighbour countries, which is Australia. It's very uh, helpful in our difficult situations to help our farmers. And Professor Rowland says his work in Timor has left a deep impression. A few of us in the project consider it the pinnacle of our career to go from 150, 180,000 pigs dead to 100 at a time. It's, it's just amazing. But we would have achieved nothing without the Timorese. They have been absolutely brilliant. They've worked hard. Uh, they've worked smart. And uh, I, I haven't seen anything like it in my life before. Agriculture Victoria Research Leader Professor Grant Rowland finishing that report from Emma Field. And the Australian Government announced earlier this year it will provide a further $3.5 million in funding to the Victorian Government to continue the work over the next five years. Now, as consumers want to know more and more about where their food comes from, it can be difficult to explain what makes a farm sustainable. Plans have now been unveiled for a $19 million national circulatory centre, which will document how the Bega Valley makes a transition to a circular economy, reducing emissions and waste from the supply chain. The facility, designed by Cox Architecture, will be built at the entrance to Bega, and Executive Chairman of Bega Group, Barry Irvin, says it will attract national and international visitors. I think importantly it's a culmination of two years of really great commitment and collaboration from a number of people from across government and across the corporate world and the general community. And so to actually be here, be able to show people models, be able to show them virtual videos of what the centre will be like, I think it's just exciting everybody. We know that it's a really unique and bold ambition to say that the National Centre for Circularity will be here in Bega and I think we can feel really proud of that. Once again, it'll be something unique for the region, but I think it'll be something that'll be the envy of the world. Describe the centre in itself, because it'll be doing multiple functions. Not only It's not only an educational facility, but it's tourism, and it's uh, very heavily linked with agriculture. 
Yes. So, look, I think the important thing, and especially in the age that we live in, and I think that the age that is in front of us, people are getting further and further removed from how their food is produced, uh, exactly what an environmental footprint might look like, how, how that footprint can be improved. Um, so I think what the Circularity Centre will do is bring that world to people in a manner in which they're starting to get used to it, in a, in a digital form, in the fact that you know they will have real evidence, real-time evidence of what's happening in a wetland or what's happening around carbon sequestration, what's happening around food production or water use. And I think the fact that we can bring that to one place, it's very difficult to show sustainability. The Circularity Centre will be a place where people will be able to see sustainability and learn while they're seeing it, which will tell them a lot about the food products that are being produced the environmental practices that are being applied, and indeed they'll learn about what their contribution can be. So I think it's, it, it, it will do many things, as you say. Perhaps importantly, it'll also be a place to stop and have a really nice coffee or a local glass of wine and some great local produce. So I think it will, it will serve many roles and many purposes. We know the locals will love it, but we think people will come from around the world to see it. When people are thinking about this National Circularity Centre, it brings abstract ideas like circularity and emissions reduction, which are hard to conceptualise to a practical sense. When you're talking about it with farmers, what's the way that you explain circularity and why it's important to them? I think that, you know... The way of changing thinking is that I think traditionally we would take a resource, we would use it, we would create a product, we were, it would be sold, we would not think much about it beyond that point. I think circularity really talks about the fact that you think about the end of life of a product and if you think about what happens at the end of its existence, it changes the way you, you might produce the product in the first place. So, so I sort of say, well, look, really, if we can use renewable resources to create the products we're going to create, that's perfect. But if we can't and we've got to use a non-renewable resource... How long can we keep that in the economic system? How many higher value uses can we find for that product? And then when that product has reached its end of life, what will become of it? How will it be treated? And so as soon as you start thinking about that in all your resources, it just changes your, your way of thinking about your system. And I think that's the foundation for then saying, OK, so I can think about a lot of things and some I will improve rapidly, some I will improve gradually, but it is a different way of looking, about, looking at and valuing the natural resources that we use. Lisa McLean is CEO and Managing Director of Circular Australia. She says the centre will provide a roadmap for other regions to learn how to adapt to a circular economy. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's well-placed to be here in Bega as a national icon on circular economy and a practical example of how how you can actually change your economy to design out waste and make it more productive. Uh, And certainly Bega has been leading Australia and arguably parts of the world in creating this sustainable economy. Where does Australia sit in the global context? You mentioned the world and, and what's happening around the world. As the head of Circular Australia... How do we compare to what's happening in Europe and where where do we sit? Well, in terms of our rate of circularity, we're kind of the same as the whole world, which is a shocking 7 or 8%, right? 7.2% actually it is today. So we're pretty low in terms of designing out waste in our economy globally. Europe is a lot more um, ahead of the curve. It's got some really good um, regulation in that means if you make something, It has to be made to last for 15 years, it has to be able to be repaired and it has to be able to be broken down at the end of life without any nasties in it like PFAS and other toxic chemicals. But Australia's playing catch up 
I think we've got a bright opportunity here. The federal government will release its, its um, framework next year and uh, that's going to provide a lot of security for investment. It's going to give us all a lot of direction on how to engage and participate in this thing called the circular economy, which is way bigger than recycling. Lisa McLean, CEO and Managing Director of Circular Australia, ending that report from Josh Becker. The New South Wales State Government allocated $14 million for the facility and Bega Group donated the land and an additional $5 million. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to... Oh, what is it? 16 minutes to one. Are you ready for the biggest little bluey countdown on Earth? All day on November 19, we're counting down your favourite 100 bluey episodes of all time. Go to the ABC Kids website for downloadable decorations and invitations so you can invite your friends to your viewing party. Turn on the TV, Janet. The biggest little bluey countdown. Bluey best. (laughs) Start 6am on Sunday, November 19 on ABC Kids and streaming on ABC iView. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, these TV ads are quite legendary and anticipated new viral New Year viral content. So the message is clear, even for you backpackers. Roll out the barbie, ensure the gas bottle's filled, stack the fridge full of lamb and prepare the invitation list. So don't be an Australian. Serve lamb on Australia Day. You know it makes sense. I'm Sam Kekovich. We all sort of seem to know them. That's the summer lamb campaigns that are known for being fun and creative and encouraging people to get together with friends and family for a barbecue. But with an oversupply forcing not only lamb but beef and goat prices down to unprofitable levels for graziers, is it high time for the industry's own red meat marketing body to roll out a big new promotion? Amy Phillips reports on how grazier contributions are spent. Every time an Australian farmer sells livestock, They're charged a levy to support marketing, research and development activities. And this year, it's meant a budget of $13 million for domestic marketing manager with Meat and Livestock Australia, Graham Yardy. And that will cover everything we do across all those channels. Packed with protein, feed your everyday greatness with beef. Hi, Sam Burke, Corporate Chef for Meat and Livestock Australia. I'm here to show you creative ways of cooking Australian red meat over fire. Why? Because it's liberating. I love the smell of lamb in the morning. It does vary year to year, but when you put that into context, uh, you know, that is less than about 0.05% of of the uh, turnover of the uh, industry. And so when you look at something like other big, you know, consumer products, brands, they'll be spending, you know, 8 to 12%. While his team is best known for their lamb ads, the job of selling red meat is made somewhat easier by the fact Australians still love eating beef and lamb. You know, if we look at the top 10 meals that Australians eat, beef can play a role in eight of them. You know, the only things it can't is, you know, fish and chips and chicken and chips. And so all the other ones, whether it be pastas, stir-fries, casseroles, those sorts of things, beef can absolutely be the choice of it. So we've just been making sure that people see that it's a really strong choice for people's midweek meals and it stays in the repertoire. Obviously, lamb is the thing that brings people together and that's always a big focus of our big summer lamb campaign. But this year, we've been focused on being much more frequent with our advertising communications through the year. So it's not just a big spike once a year. 
And we've been seeing fantastic growth in the volume of lamb being pushed through outside of summer, which we're happy with. This year, dry conditions have forced record numbers of livestock into abattoirs. It's also forced prices down. And Graham Yardy says it is allowing more people to put meat on their table. Obviously, the price is starting to come down um, at, at retail, and that's actually helping volume as well. So in the last four weeks, compared to last year, we've seen beef up 8% and lamb up 20%. Lamb's premium to chicken has been floating around sort of 80% for the last sort of five years. But if we look at where it is uh, in the last month, it's it's at 50%. The last time lamb was, you know, that close to chicken in, in cost was 2014. So 10 years ago, we're talking. So this is a, you know, a very different scenario than we've faced for the last uh, five or six years. So, you know, absolutely. So we're looking very closely at what we do and, you know, how we think about our promotional activities. Obviously, summer lamb is the next big thing, which is very much uh, in the works. But, you know, we're looking at what other tactical things can we do with retailers to make sure that they've got enough stock weight at the shelf. They're doing everything in that last three feet, if you like, of purchase to make sure that the product is front and centre. Graham Yardy, Domestic Marketing Manager with MLA, ending that story from Amy Phillips. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, scouting has inspired a South Australian woman to turn farm waste into a sustainable food business. Kelly Johnson makes meals out of second-grade fruit and veggies. And as Landlines Kerry State found, so far there's only one fruit that's defeated her. All right, Liz, if you do um, potato on obvious sweet potato... In a factory at Monato, east of Adelaide, Kelly Johnson is filling packets with all sorts of dehydrated fruit and veggies. Smell those mushrooms. In a business where food specs are pretty easy to meet. We take marked, small, scratched, cracked. If I would eat it, I'll use it. And I'll pretty much eat anything. Kelly is the founder of Woodlane Orchard, which sells snacks, meals and garnishes made from second-grade or surplus fresh produce. It's a business she almost fell into after leaving her job in Adelaide four years ago and returning to her hometown of Maipalonga. I had a friend who was throwing away one tonne of dried peaches a year. So I said to him I'd go to a couple of markets and I would sell the peaches for him. So I value-added, did a bit of chocolate dipping and they went. So then my husband said, well, now you'll have to get a job. And I thought, oh, don't really want to do that. This was fun. So looked around, lots of produce, decided I'd have a go at a few other things. Oh, these look great, Brian. Oh, that's good. Citrus grower Brian Martin was one of her early suppliers. So got a few wind marks on them, but they'll be good for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So when she first came to you with the idea, what did you actually think? I thought, oh, this will last five minutes and she'll be out the door. But she's gone bigger and better than I ever thought. Stone fruit and citrus got Kelly's fledgling business going. But in winter, when more veggies started rolling in, the former scout leader decided to take the business in a new direction. I started thinking about how I had utilised vegetables in the past with my scouts to make lightweight meals hiking. And I thought, well, I could just adopt that same philosophy and make meals. While the idea was inspired by her experience with the scouts, farmers influenced the type of meals she made. I had a farmer say, I've got a tonne of eggplant, can you do something with it? And I said, I'm not sure. 
and did a bit of investigating. We created Ratatouille out of that. So that whole product wouldn't exist if that farmer hadn't come to us with byproduct, with waste product. Kelly has turned everything from zucchini and pumpkin to tomatoes and cabbage into meal ingredients. But the one thing that has never made it beyond the test kitchen is avocado, despite her best efforts to turn it into something edible, including a powdered guacamole. In the process of drying it and grinding it, it turns into a disgusting oily paste that was horrible. It smelled bad, really wasn't good. That's the biggest failure we've had. Beyond that, everything else has worked. COVID threatened to end the business when farmers' markets shut down. But not one to be defeated, Kelly took her products to wholesalers. The business continued to grow, forcing Kelly to go further afield for fruit and vegetables, including to Adelaide Hills strawberry farmer Steph Rosaklis. How's it going, Kelly? Good, how are you? Good. Oh, they look great. They are, they're beautiful at the moment. We are at the mercy of the weather and sometimes we can't help that we have damaged fruit. You know, they are grown outside, they're quite a soft-skinned fruit. So it's great to have people like Kelly who don't need the perfect A-grade strawberries for their business. Until last year, Kelly ran the business out of her home, but a health crisis changed that. I got diagnosed with thyroid cancer and I just knew that I couldn't recover if I had to have everything inside the house with me. I would have kept working, I would have kept pushing, I would have kept doing and I needed to stop. Fortunately, she crossed paths with a local pomegranate juice producer who offered to share their factory. In return, Kelly has started value-adding the juice byproducts. While the business now sells about 80 different lines and employs several staff, she says this year has been the hardest to make a profit, with living costs changing buyer habits. I embrace at times the challenges that come our way because they force you to stop, reevaluate, think and pivot. You know, go somewhere else, do something different, change it up. Her latest change is to return to her scouting roots and launch a range of smaller hiking meals. And while she didn't have much ambition at the start of this business, it certainly kicked in now. I want it to be thought of as a you know, front runner in terms of sustainability, in terms of you know, making our world a little bit better. Kelly Johnson ending that story from Kerry State. And you can check out Kelly's innovative business. Uh, you can catch up on the episode of Landline on iView and a fantastic story there. You can also read more about it online as well at abc.net.au slash rural. Let's go to a, a bit of a different orchard of uh, such. Let's head to what's potentially the most remote one in Australia. NT reporter Victoria Ellis was in the APY lands recently and visited the Kenmore Park School, which is home to a thriving community orchard that's growing a range of fruits, including apricots, mandarins and mulberries. And she caught up with school principal Charlie Klein. Yeah, we've got a small orchard which has a variety of stone fruit and citrus. Um, we've, that's been in for two years now. Um, Favourite for the children is the mulberry trees. They will go there every day when they're starting to ripen and eat. And they're involved in the planting and the articulation for them and then maintaining that area. And they also um, grow vegetables, seasonal vegetables. So they'll do things like grow beetroot and then pickle that and we'll use that for the school lunches. Right now we're growing, the cabbages are coming on. Um, there's some broccoli, onions, celery, Tomatoes are coming on for the summer. Not many tomatoes left though, are they? The kids loved those. (laughs) 
Well, the little ones, they do tend to pick them green. But um, it's part of the program where the kids each week do something that's practical and outside. And around that um, sort of veggie garden, as we see traditionally in most of the towns of Australia, um, we also have um, native um, bushes that we use for making bush medicine. So it's a mixture of a traditional garden or traditional plants, if you like, local plants, and imported veggies and things. But it's um, a part of the week where kids are involved in doing something practical. And it's a, related to the science program we do. Um, we do a thing called two-way science where children learn on country with their families. They're actively empowered to be involved in their children's learning. And we use that learning on country then to actively teach further science in whatever area, be it um, in regard to animals or, or vegetation or weather. And, uh, and that fills the science program. And we have children who are actually getting A's benchmarked nationally, which is quite wonderful. And uh, then we integrate that science across the curriculum. And there's a lot of involvement from the community. They come into the school and they also take the kids out of school and help with the education and the teaching. Can you tell me how many staff you've got working from the community and what sort of things that they actually do and how that involvement works? Yeah, we have five animal, Aboriginal people in our school, um, an animal coordinator, and that person, Lois, and I lead the school together in a collaborative manner. And then we have four that work in the classrooms. Um, Hazel, she leads the playgroup and the junior kids. Um, then we have two um, women who work in our lower class and then Aaron who works in the upper class. And they, they support the teachers as a teaching team in teaching the regular curriculum that we have, English, maths, um, has, uh, music, drama. But they specifically they lead the teaching of Pittendutta. So we do that on a daily basis. Um, and they lead the teaching of that and they lead two-way science. So they're actually empowered to, to lead and teach their kids and we can see that by having a bilingual approach, two-way approach in our school, learning both languages complements each other. And uh, we can see vast improvement, especially this year. We've been working on it for a few years and kids are really, really sort of settling in now and understanding and, and getting great results. But it's that uh, teaching the whole curriculum, but certainly animal empowered in their children's education and making decisions about the school. We collaborate and it, it makes it a happy, strong place. And what's next for the school community? What will you be growing next or planting next or working on to help encourage that side of the learning? Well, we're hoping that um, over the Christmas break there'll be lots of pumpkins and lots of um, watermelons. Um, they're the main things we're looking forward to, but also the tomatoes and things. We have a, we have a few chooks. So at school, we'll, we're going out bush today and we'll be having um, curried egg sandwiches and they'll be eggs from the school. So the um, main thrust we have, we have a, a goal that in 10 years we'll have children going to further education. In our, we've got a community education agreement we work, we work with. And so we're, we're hoping that we'll have children will extend their learning past, past the school here and uh, into university or further education of some form. What a fantastic program they've got going. That was Kenmore Park School uh, Principal Charlie Klein speaking with Victoria Ellis. And what they say that uh, you know, if, if the kids are growing the produce themselves and they tend to eat it uh, more if they're, they're involved with the, the growing process and the cooking process. So it's uh, great to hear what's happening there in the APY lands. Well, that's all we've got time for on the program for today. You can uh, find more stories online at abc.net.au slash rural and you can go back and listen to this program plus plenty more ABC programs on the ABC Listen app. It's, uh, it's a pretty easy app to find and then you can uh, search for your favourite station and uh, select that one and uh, you can follow all your ABC programs from there. 
Thanks very much for joining me on this Monday. Hope you have a good rest of your afternoon. Hopefully Selena Green will be back with you tomorrow. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather.